0: this evening in Jude, Jude. Fascinating little book, last book before Revelation, the book of Jude. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this evening we confess that our hope is in Christ alone, that it is in Christ in which we stand. It is in Christ in which we have forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternity. Heavenly Father, may that simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that we are in Christ, that we never stray from that. That we never allow anything to creep in and to push us off course even a little bit. But may we fight for the truth. May we stay rooted and grounded in the truth and not wonder at all. Lord, give us wisdom, even as we look at this passage this, this evening, challenge us, give us a, a love for the gospel, for the truth, that we may, with Martin Luther, say, here I stand, I can do no other. We pray that you'd be honored this evening as we look at this passage, in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, it took us almost all of 2020, but we finally got through the book of Daniel. There were lots of little breaks in there, lots of different things that, that popped up. But we finished the book of Daniel, and it came to the new year, and I was looking at, where do we go next? And, and I like to kind of alternate. I don't like finishing one book that's kind of longer and then jumping right into another book that's kind of longer. Sometimes you need a little bit of a break. You need a little bit of a breather, a kind of a go-between. And so I was looking for, for something I could kind of fit in between there, just a, a little book, just a little series that we could work our way through, that the Lord would challenge us through. And I came to the book of Jude. It's one of those books I don't think many of us are super familiar with. It's there, and we know it. But the more I was thinking about it, I don't know that I'd ever heard someone preach through the book of Jude growing up in the churches that I've been a part of. And yet, it is the word of God, and it is profitable, and it is good for us. So we're going to work our way through this little book. and We're going to pray that the Lord would work, that he would challenge us as we do. The book of Jude. As we work our way through this, we'll simply see the author, the audience, and the message. It's all laid out here, right here at the beginning. From the very beginning here, Jude will tell us why he's writing. It's not a secret that he holds till the end. He wants you to know from the beginning. So, as we start, what is the date of the book of Jude? It is most likely sometime between AD 65 and 80. We don't really know where and there it is. It's closely connected to, but probably follows, the book of 2 Peter. In fact, we'll note that as we work our way through here, 2 Peter, in 2 Peter, Peter warns of false teachers who will sneak into the church. And as we come to Jude, Jude is writing because those false teachers are here. So it's an urgent book. In fact, you'll sense the urgency as we get even into verse 3. So it's written sometime probably uh, right around the the destruction of the temple, either right before or right after. So sometime between uh, 65 to 80 AD. It's written by Jude. In fact, his name is the first word. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Who is this Jude? Jude. Most likely, the, his brother James here, and who we see, is the brother of Jesus, pastor of the church at Jerusalem, the most well-known James in the early church. And if that is true, if his brother is James, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, the brother of Jesus, then that makes Jude also the brother of Jesus. In fact, it is most likely that Jude is Judas, brother of Jesus, as noted in Matthew 13.55 and Mark 6.3. Most likely, he's, he's probably the youngest brother of Jesus. And with that in mind, it's fascinating then how Jude identifies himself. Notice he doesn't say, Jude, the brother of Jesus. He says Jude a bondservant of Jesus Christ. A bondservant. It's as if he's just like any other believer. But he's not like any other. He's the he's the brother of Jesus. But that's the point. It's not his family relation to Jesus that gives him any authority or privilege or hope. It is his connection to Jesus by faith. It is submission to Jesus as Lord and Savior that truly matters. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that he's the brother of Jesus. What matters is that he has submitted and believed and is hoping in Jesus Christ as his Savior, as his Lord. He starts with this because this is the most important thing about him. I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. In fact, many of the other uh, authors in Scripture reckon, note, uh, use that to identify themselves. In fact, his brother James, writing at the, at, in the book of James, he doesn't start with James, the brother of Jesus. He starts with James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter, Peter starts with that same language, a servant of Jesus Christ. In Titus and Philippians and Romans, Paul uses that same language, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. What a privilege it is to be a servant of Jesus Christ. I think it's important for us to note here the humility of Jude, his faith, his submission in the Lord Jesus Christ. You may remember a few uh, months ago, several months ago, as we were working through the book of John, as we came to John 7.25, it's noted very clearly that Jesus' brothers did not believe. So Jude's unbelief Even his mockery of Jesus as he's planning to go to Jerusalem is very clearly noted. And as we come to Jude this morning, this evening, we rejoice in the faith of these brothers of Jesus, of James and of Jude, who after the resurrection recognized who Jesus was and believed in him and submitted to him. And so as the author, it is Jude or Judas or Judah, depending on uh, where you look. They're all three referencing the same person, Jude, the brother of Jesus, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see the audience. Who is it that, that Jude is writing to? Well, it's to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. The first thing that we recognize very clearly is that he's writing to believers. He's writing to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. That language there, called, that's really kind of the the main word there. And then those other two modify it sanctified and preserved, look back to called. Called is the main word there. To those who are called. To those who have been effectively summoned to salvation by, Jesus, by, by, by God through Jesus Christ. And what we see here is that salvation is all of God. From faith to sanctification, ultimately to glorification. It is all of God's work, not of me. He's writing to those who are called. What does that mean to be called? It means to be sanctified and preserved. The language we see there, sanctified by God the Father. God at work in you. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God will complete what he has begun in you. So rejoice in that. Preserved by Jesus Christ, Jesus at work for you, pleading for you, keeping you. See that in John 10, 27 to 30, Ephesians 1, uh, 13 to 14, Philippians 1, 6, Romans 8, 28 to 39, John 6, 37 to 47. Very clearly we see that those who are in Christ are kept in Christ. Perseverance of the saints. You cannot lose your salvation, but you will be saved you will be sanctified. You will be glorified. It is Jesus that will keep you and it is God that will complete in you what he has begun. Called. In fact, Romans eight twenty-eight to 30, a well-known passage, another passage where we see this word called. And we see this idea here even that to be called, that those who God calls, God completes what he begins. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, they might end up being glorified. That's not what it says. It says. Those who he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. To be called by God is to be saved. It is to be sanctified. It is to be preserved. Because it is all a work of God. And we rejoice in that. And this is the audience to who he's writing, believers. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. MacArthur notes here just a kind of an interesting note here that mercy and peace is a commish, common Jewish greeting, but there's a third word that's added here, love. MacArthur notes how that, that word love is added to make it distinctly Christian. That's what Christians were known for, their love. In fact, we looked at that this morning, even did we not? How will they know? That that you are my disciples because of your love for one another. This is the word that, that marks us out as those who are Christ because of our love. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. It's written by Jude. It's written to believers. Jewish believers, as we'll see as you work your way through this book, there are many references to the Old Testament, even to to, uh, writings in the Old Testament that are outside of the canon of Scripture. He'll reference many of those. His Jewish audience would have been very familiar with him. They would have known that. And it would be, be a very effective way of writing for them. So that's a hint to us that he's writing not just to believers, but specifically to Jewish believers. So, what is the message? What is the message of Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James and the brother of Jesus, written to these Jewish believers who have been called and sanctified and preserved in Jesus Christ? So, you see, as you come to verse 3 Beloved, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude here starts by saying, I I planned. I had this great desire. I I wanted to. I wanted to write to you concerning our common salvation. This salvation that is even just quickly referenced in in verse 1 so beautifully. Called, sanctified, preserved. I wanted to write to you about that. I was was ready to. I was longing to. And what a glorious subject to write on. But there's a more pressing issue presently. There's something that, that, that grabs my attention that I must address. That I must address. So I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you. Appealing to you. Pleading with you to do what? What was so important, important that it, it took Jude's attention away from writing on something as great and glorious as salvation, something which he so desired to write on. to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend earnestly. Contend. It's a very strong word. Fight. To wage war. Wage war. To fight for the faith. Fight earnestly. This is of the the utmost importance. It takes all of your effort. Put everything you have into this. Wage war with all diligence. For the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. This faith, once for all delivered to the saints, it is the gospel as proclaimed. At this time in history, the apostles' teaching, by by the time that, that Jude is writing, the apostles' teaching, the gospel has been settled, doctrine has been established, it has been verified by the apostles' by the writing of the word of God, by the the miracles and the gifts that God gave them. And notice this, the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. This truth is established, it is fixed, it does not change with time. This doctrine, this, this gospel that makes up our faith in which, we were believed, in which we believed when we placed our faith in Christ for salvation, in which we live, does not change with time. It is the truth once for all. To the saints, the saints of every generation, those who are called by God, as we see in verse 1, those who are called, sanctified, and preserved. The faith which was once for all delivered. See, that's where a lot of churches, a lot of believers, a lot of people get, get off course. But yeah, that, that, that gospel, the, you know, what Paul said there, that, that applied to that day and age. But look how times have changed. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter how times change. The word of God does not change. It is the truth and it is always the truth. And the truth does not change. So contend for that truth. Contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints, the gospel. But why is this need so pressing? Yes, we would agree. I would hope that those of us who are gathered here tonight, that that we would agree that that yes, this, this doctrine is precious. That we should contend for it. We should defend it. But why has this grabbed Jude's attention and and caused him to alter what he wanted to write and to write this little letter? Because verse 4 tells us certain men have crept in unnoticed. Certain men have crept in unnoticed. I don't know about you, but that is a terrifying little part of a sentence. How is it that they have crept in unnoticed? How is it that, that this truth that has been once for all delivered, that has been established, how is it that it can so easily be be, be twisted? You would think that it would be obvious if someone came in who, who went contrary to this truth that, that it would be obvious. How is it that these men have crept in that they've got a foothold here? In fact, what you'll go on to see in the book of Jude is that this infiltration is purposeful and their goal is destruction. It's not that these men are confused. These men are twisting Scripture perfect, purposely for their purposes and they have infiltrated the church in order to lead it astray. And whether they know it or not, they are the tools of the devil. They are a direct attack on the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. You see, when you first read that, well, how is it that these men have have crept in? Is the gospel at, at stake? Is everything that I have believed going to come crumbling down if they get a foothold? Here Jude reminds us that they are not a threat to God. Long ago, they were marked out for this condemnation. God saw them coming. He foretold of their destruction, in fact. In fact, even as I mentioned earlier, Jude is very tied to 2 Peter 2. To, to 2 Peter. In fact, if you read 2 Peter alongside of Jude, you'll see, you'll see many similar themes. And in 2 Peter two, 2 Peter gives this very warning. It says this. Starting in verse 1, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who, who bought them, and bring to themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Not that long ago, Peter had just warned of them, they are coming. And now Jude is writing, and Jude is saying, They are here. They did not surprise God. He saw them coming. In fact, as you work your way through the as we work our way through the book of Jude, he gives many examples, not, not just from the immediate context where Peter has written, but even into the Old Testament of those who have. Stood up, who've rebelled against God, who have led others astray, and every single time their end is destruction. But that doesn't make this present situation any less dire. Who are these men? They are ungodly men. Ungodly is the, the idea of a, a, a they are empty of worship, they lack reverence. In fact, you, you see that even in the context. What does it mean to lack reverence, to be ungodly? It's the fact that as they come into the church, they have, they have no Reverence for the church or for the gospel or for anything that's going on, they are just, they see it as an opportunity to twist it to get what they want. They're not there to worship, they're not there to learn, they're there to get what they want. What do they do? They turn the grace of our God into lewdness. They twist grace. These are men who in their ungodliness see the grace of God not as the glorious reality of what it is but as an opportunity to satisfy the desires of their flesh. Brothers and sisters, the grace of God is not an opportunity to do what you want grace of God is an opportunity to fall before the mercy and the grace of God on your knees and to rejoice that God has cleansed you. These are men who, who misunderstand grace. In fact, they don't want to understand grace because they want to satisfy the desires of their flesh. They turn the grace of God into lewdness. They pervert it. And they don't even, they don't even deny, to, they don't even try to believe. They deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no faith in them. Really what you see in verses 3 to 4, it's a shocking reality. And you can see why it demands the immediate attention of Jude. Why it is that he diverted from what he wanted to write on to address this issue. They are here They're among you, and you must wage war on them. The reality is that in this fallen world, wherever there is truth, there will always be lies. And Jude will point this out as we work our way through here, through this book just here at the beginning, as Jude marks this very beginning, as he identifies himself, as he, as he tells us what his message is, why he's writing, I think it's good for us to pause and to recognize that Jude's warning is just as necessary and urgent today as it was when he first wrote it. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is precious. This faith which was once delivered to the saints has been delivered to you. This faith in which you believed when you were called and sanctified and preserved in Jesus Christ is a glorious faith. It is a precious faith. It is a faith worth fighting for. And we must guard the truth and wage war on error we cannot sway even a little bit i think of the book pilgrim's progress if you've ever read that if you've never read that book i'd recommend you read it it's an excellent book by john bunyan but as he starts out on the way he meets this man the first wood that he gets to named uh, evangelist and evangelist keeps warning christian stay on the path Do not stray to the left or to the right. Stay on the straight path. That's where my mind goes when I read a passage like this, where Jude is writing to these believers and he's saying, brothers and sisters, stay on the straight path. Fight to stay on that straight path. Fight to guard the gospel. Fight to guard the faith. Contend earnestly. Wage war against error. It, 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 the language here isn't just defensive, it's even offensive. Don't just wait for, for the war. Sit back and, and wait till it's too late, then defend yourselves. But go out. Mark it and fight it. Don't let it even get a toe in the door. I was going to, in closing, read a powerful story of Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms, where he stands up and and facing the trial in which he stands. They're telling him to uh, denounce what he has been teaching and preaching, to return to the Catholic faith, and he says, I cannot. I cannot deny my conscience. I cannot deny the authority of the Word of God. Here I stand." I was going to read it, but I left it in the printer. I forgot to bring it. So you can go read it yourself sometime. But the reality is that we must, with Martin Luther, say, "Here I stand, and I cannot stand elsewhere. And I will not stray to the right or to the left, and I will not allow any error into this church. I will guard this pulpit with everything inside of me. And that's not just my responsibility. That's your responsibility. I will guard what is taught in our Sunday school classrooms. I will guard what is taught on Wednesday nights in this church. I will contend for the faith. I will fight for it. I will not let any error get a foothold. This morning, as we looked at Hebrews 6, we saw the need for diligence in the Christian life. The need to to stay in the word of God, to study it, to grow in the Lord. And that ties into tonight because of this. Simply put, you cannot defend the faith if you don't know the faith if you are not being diligent in your own Christian life, if you are not growing in the Lord, that when time comes, and hopefully, Lord willing, it will not, but if someone ever were to stand up here and to say something that that when contrary to the word of God, you might not even know what it was because you don't know your Bible. You don't know what it is that you believe. So you might ask the question, well, how is it that we contend for the faith? What does that look like? Number one, it looks like knowing the faith. <laughs> know what it is that you believe. Study it. Read the Bible. Immerse yourself in it. Know the gospel forwards and backwards. Not just so that you can defend the faith or fight, contend, even as we see this, but so that you can make disciples. Disciples. As a believer, the the Bible is central to everything that you do. Dr. Newman has a quote. Uh, I I think it was in a podcast that he was a a guest on. And they were asking him a question, and Dr. Newman answered this way. Brilliant. I wrote it down, and I've returned to it often. He said, you can only draw on what you know from Scripture. You can only draw on what you know from Scripture. If you don't know what the Bible says, you can't draw from it. So the first step to contending for the faith is knowing the Word of God. Valuing the Word of God. Secondly, it is then growing, as we saw this morning. It's being ready by knowing the truth. It's being bold by proclaiming the truth. It means that every time that we gather, every time the word of God is open, that you are following along. Whether that's electronically or whether that is through a physical Bible. Whatever that looks like, have the Bible open. Follow along. Be checking. Contend for the faith. We're going to close this evening with the song, I Stand Redeemed. It's a powerful song, but the reason I I picked it to, to close with, and one of the reasons why I love this song, is because it so beautifully captures the preciousness of our faith. It is a declaration that I stand redeemed. And then I will fight for this faith that has saved me. I will defend it. I will contend for it. So let's stand and let's close by singing hymn 346, I stand redeemed.